Thank you, everybody. I am... There is a bit of an elephant in the room, and it, it might be an elephant's foot, so I'm just going to get all the distraction out of the way. I have a broken ankle. Um, thank the gym. Just don't exercise, and you'll be fine. At lunchtime, I managed to pour boiling water on my hand, and so you may have seen... I oh, know, thank you. More sympathy is great. I uh, found myself walking around like this over lunch, <laughs> and I came in here, and then I'm, I've got this contraption on, and I just feel a bit like... I don't know, a bit worse for wear, and then for all I know, when the um, slide's on, my half my face is going to be cut off, and I just feel a bit dishevelled here. And then I thought, someone said, are you going to use this as a metaphor? And I was like, I don't know, maybe there's some leaders out there that are just feeling a bit entangled, entrapped, lame, burnt, burnt. Any leaders out there feeling burnt, broken? Here we are, just dishevelled. Um, I've got one good leg and one not so good, but I am here and I, it is a true privilege to be here. Um, John Mark ended with that analogy, or not analogy, the reality for many of you who are parents. And there is a great um, quote out there that I came across recently that said, I used to have no children and six opinions about parenting. I now have six children and no opinions about parenting. And when I came across that quote, I thought, man, that's leadership also. That parallel between parenting and leadership, it's there. I don't have children myself, um, but I do know the wiles of leadership and ministry. And so before I start, I just want to thank you as leaders for all that you do. You carry responsibility that no one else carries. You have sleepless nights that no one else has. You deal in an anxious environment whilst dealing with your own anxieties. You are leading in a day that is not easy, that is not clear, that is not straight cut. It's easy to have opinion when you don't have responsibility. And so for those of you who carry that responsibility in all its different ways, I want to thank you. I want to thank you for your perseverance. With the amount of people that are in this room, there are a lot of war stories. There are a lot of uh, hidden struggles and silent struggles of trying to navigate leadership in this day, trying to be a disciple yourself in this day. Um, I want to thank you that you're still here. I had someone come up to me this morning, um, made a beeline for me actually, I'd never met them, and uh, it's Noel from, um, from Queensland, and he said, I need to ask you about your last name. It's Deutscher, by the way, he means German male, just thought I'd tell you that. And <laughs> he said, um, are you from Ballarat? I said, yes, I'm from Ballarat. And he said, are you, do you know a Mini and an Eric Deutscher who happened to my grandparents? And with tears in his eyes um, and choking up, he wanted to just acknowledge the role that they had played in his life as a 10-year-old. Hasn't seen them since he was 10. Now in his 70s. I think it is, but the impact they had on him as 10, now in his 70s, been in ministry 47 years. And so there's people like Noel in this room. Some of you might have only been in ministry for six months, six days, 47 years. But I want to thank you for your obedience. I want to thank you for your perseverance. I want to thank you for your own struggles that you've been through, um, but you keep getting up and you're here today. So I'm just going to pray that the God who has kept you uh, on board and the God who has given you the strength to persevere would um, really speak to each one of us as I hold my bent hand. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> Father God, we uh, want to honour you uh, first and foremost as the true and living God who um, is only acquainted with grief and suffering. You are a joyful God. You are a God of benevolence. You are a God 
of great joy. You are a God of great compassion. You have everything under your feet. We thank you for the joy that it is to know you. We thank you for the privilege that it is to serve you. And I want to ask and pray that your Holy Spirit would come this afternoon as it has been throughout today and that you know the hearts and the minds and the souls of the people in this room and you know what it is that you're wanting to encourage them with. You know what it is that your Spirit's wanting to deposit. And so I want to ask and pray that these words would fall on uh, soft ground, that your Spirit would enable those seeds to uh, go deep and enable transformation uh, and encouragement. Would you reap a harvest in an era where we're, we're desperate for one, we're longing for one, we look forward to one in Jesus' name. Amen. What I uh, was wanting to do um, this afternoon is just a bit of a biblical reflection. I wanted to take us back to the beginning of our story, not the Genesis beginning, the Exodus beginning. Uh, all good Jews say all roads lead to Sinai. And so I thought we'd have a little look um, at that story that we know all very well. It is that story of God's chosen people, not yet known they're chosen, but captive to a culture that is not their own. Their day is dictated by this outside power, uh, by the empire of Egypt, by Pharaoh. They don't have a second to themselves. Their days, their lives, their worldview, their journey is dictated by brick quotas, labour, coercion and no rest for them at all. After 400 years, God hears their cry and he intervenes. I want to take you to a chapter in uh, Exodus 19, 5 to 6. If you have your Bibles, feel free to turn to this. Uh, If you don't, I'll, I'll read it to you. Exodus 19, verse 5 to 6 says this. This is after Jesus has intervened. We've had plagues We've had the Nile turn into blood. We've had the plague of death come near their doorpost, which is easy to read as a Sunday school story, but can you imagine the reality of having to live through this time? Being used to the order of the day, the rhythm of the day, the psyche of the day, get up, make bricks, go home if you're lucky, get up, make bricks, go home if you're lucky. You have no sense of identity, you have no sense of story. You hear the rumours of an Abraham, an Isaac and a Jacob, but the DNA and the life of that covenant that's spoken over them is just a distant memory. And then this God that you've heard rumours about has turned up tangibly in real time, raised up a leader, and he is now coming to free them from everything they've ever known. They don't necessarily like what they've known, but they have not known any different. Culminates in this angel of death passing their doorway. I've been anxious before. I don't think I would be as anxious. I don't think anyone could be as anxious as knowing that the angel of death is going to come past, put blood on the doorways. You then come out, you come with the multitudes, tens of thousands, and you escape Egypt. You hit this Red Sea, you're blocked. There is no way that you're going to be able to get through there. Pharaoh, the sound of hooves, the the flurry of dust and smoke and everything that is going on. You hit this Red Sea, you're stuck. Moses is quite even keeled about this. He says, it's okay. There's no way through. It's all right. You just need only be silent. Sea opens up. They escape. Sea falls on Pharaoh and his armies. And then they're in this wilderness. It's an unknown land. It's an unknown territory. All the customs that have shaped their world until now have left them. It's new. It's completely new. 
And after three months of walking in this wilderness, uh, God comes to them and gets Moses to tell them this in Exodus 19. Actually, I'm going to start at verse 4. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to me, capital M. I have carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to me. Now, if you will listen to me and carefully keep my covenant, you will be my own possession out of all the peoples. Although all the earth is mine, you will be my kingdom of priests, my holy nation. These are the words that you are to say to the Israelites. In real time, this is a big deal. Prior to this instance, God has appeared to the likes of Noah, to Abraham, to Jacob. He's revealed himself to individuals, but this is the first time he has come to a group of people who don't yet know they're necessarily a nation because that identity has been ripped from them. And he's saying, I as a living God have brought you to myself and I am choosing you out of all the peoples of the earth to be my holy nation, my royal priesthood, a people belonging to me. Of all the people in the earth, I have chosen you. The Israelites say two things in response to this. It's in verse 10 and verse 17. Verse 17, to God they say, we will do as you say. It's exactly what every God wants to hear. And there is only one God, um, our God. And so he's like, yes, they're going to do as we say. There's this instant um, assent to obedience. So we'll do what you say. And then they say what every leader wants to hear in verse 10. To Moses they say, we will believe you forever. So to God, we will do as you say. To Moses, we will believe you forever. And they have gone from slavery, 400 years, which I cannot comprehend, to freedom. And they have confidence in their God and they have confidence in their leader and they are just willing to go wherever. We know what happens in this story. Um, In this story, we find that uh, Moses is then taken up to Mount Sinai himself where he spends some time with God and he comes down from Mount Sinai and discovers that these people who have just been freed from slavery to freedom, who have just said to God, we will obey you forever, and to their leader, we will follow you forever, and they're worshipping a golden calf. Now, in Sunday school, I thought this story was ridiculous. In my teenage years, I thought this story was ridiculous. I think, silly Israelites, what are you thinking? Um, I've never really understood it. I think Aaron was the most ridiculous, who are the, who's the semi-leader to IC, who they come up to and they're like, um, look, just take our gold and can you please make us a calf? And he uh, does that. When Moses comes down from the mountain, he's fuming, he's furious, and God is even angrier at this incident. And Moses says to Aaron, what were you thinking? And in true human fashion, he says... Um, I don't know what happened. They gave me all this gold and I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. (laughs) Reminds me of Adam and Eve in the garden. It reminds me of human after human. It reminds me of myself. That there are always reasons and there are always rationales to why we do what we do. I came across this passage just a couple of weeks ago and I found myself enamoured with it and I sat with it for a couple of weeks just starting to look from the perspective of the Israelites. 
their end of history, not our end of history. What was going on here? That there is something more powerful in their formation, something more powerful in their psyche that trumped any cognitive assent to what they wanted to do and to what they wanted to believe. I don't personally like cows that much and I'm not a massive fan of gold, although it is my metal of choice. But we have this incident where something more powerful has happened. John Mark Homer hit hit it before when he talked about how much your environment is the thing that shapes you more than anything else, more than knowledge, more than what you say you believe to be true. The environment that you are in is actually what shapes you. And if you really want to know, as as is famously said, if you really want to know what your true religion is, don't look at what you believe, look at what shapes your behaviour that it's that transformation that shapes your behaviour. We have the Israelites here in the wilderness, freed in an unknown land, got no identity. Something has been spoken over them, but they're yet to discover what that is in real time. They're yet to live through that. They've got bread made available to them miraculously every morning. And in an instant, they're worshipping something other than God. If you look deeper at the passage, you realise that they are actually incredibly fearful. If you think about the context of what's going on, they've just been through a massive ordeal. They have been through a great grand drama. They have been through physical threat. They have been through cultural threat. God has rescued them. Their leader is the one they can see. The leader is the one they've got confidence in. This non-anxious, courageous presence is navigating them through this terrain and he's gone up a mountain and they haven't heard from him. They wait. One day, he doesn't come back. Maybe he'll come back the next day. They wait, doesn't come back. They see like storm clouds on this big mountain, Mount Sinai. This God himself has spoken to them already audibly. It's a scary voice. It's a God who's descended in all his awe and all his power, all his transcendence on earth for the first time. Their leader is up at the mountain with him. Day one, day two, day three, day four, day five, day six, day seven day 8, day 9, day 10, maybe it's tomorrow, day 11, day 12, maybe it's day 22, he's going to come back. No, we still have no leader. Day 40, still not a leader. They're anxious, they're abandoned, they have no idea what to do, they have no idea where to go. And that dislocation sets in and they're desperate for something that can take them and lead them. I don't know if you've ever felt like that. Anxious, if you're human, you probably have. Abandoned, most likely, at some stage in your life. But that dread, that deep-seated fear that you're in this alone. Maybe you feel at the moment that God is up the mountain and you know one day he's going to come back. Maybe you are in the isolation of leadership where who leads the leader? And you're desperate to have that leader come and lead you. What happens to all of us in a human condition? People who are wired 
to have something outside ourselves to tell us who we are. We fall to this phenomenon of worshipping idols. We have them in verse 1 of chapter 32 here. When the people saw how long it was taking Moses to come back down the mountain, they gathered around Aaron. Come on, they said, make us some gods who can lead us. We don't know what has happened to this fellow Moses. We wanted to believe him. We wanted to obey him. But for all we know, this God has killed him and now we're abandoned. And what they do is they fall to the default. They fall to the worldview of Egypt. Egypt has many gods. One of the many gods I had was the bull. The bull represents uh, fertility and strength. So the absence of not understanding what's going on in the absence of a leader, fear, anxiety, abandonment comes up and they fall to what they know. They fall to the cultural customs of the very place that they were freed from. They had left Egypt, but Egypt had not left them. And this cultural formation starts to take over. They fall back onto something that they can see and they can control. In thinking about this, I'm like, don't like cows and gold is okay. I think I'm safe. But, of course, we have idols in our culture. And I'm not here to judge our culture. I'm not here to make a list of them. We probably have a community of idols when you think about it. But as I was thinking about what are the things that we as human beings fall back to in the absence of a present God or the sense of a present God or in the absence of a leader or in the sense of a presence leader, what are the things that we fall back onto when we don't know who we are, when we don't know what our identity is and we don't know what the purpose is and we don't know what's happening? John Mark just spoke about this will happen by you just getting up. If you live, this is happening to you. If you're breathing, this is happening to you. And so as leaders in a room on a Friday afternoon, what do you think they are? As any uh, cultural commentator will say, as any ministry leader will say, if you're doing ministry in this time and place, it is vital that you can actually articulate what are the idols of the city in which you're doing ministry. As I've been reflecting on this, I could come up with a community of idols, but in praying for what I felt that, that God was weaving together today, there were two that he gave me. And they're two that are in the world, absolutely, and they're also in the church. They've just got a Christian veneer over them, uh, but we just think we're more holy. And what you'll find is these two things will resonate with you. The first one that we have, I'm going to call activity. Now, I've deliberately used the word activity, not busyness, because if I say busyness, it's just going to go over your head because it's so normal to everyday conversation. How are you? I'm just so busy. How are the kids? Yeah, they're just so busy. Like, we just can't get a moment to ourselves. We're just so busy. By activity, I mean everything from production to task lists to busyness to um, performance to achievement to planning to success and everything else in between. Our culture is one that is busy. Ten out of ten people ask, how are you? And it's, I'm busy. When people ask me, how are you? Yeah, I'm good, man, I'm busy. This is busyness that drives us an activity, absolutely. There's nothing wrong with that, as John Mark talked about, that it's not just up to God to do everything. We need to be active. The issue is, is that if our activity is where we are getting our sense of identity or our success, 
our sense of centre and our sense of well-being in the world, what we have before us is a golden calf. Now, the next one I'm going to give us might sound contradictory, but I think you'll understand me when I map this out a little bit. The second one is comfort. By that I mean everything from recreation to experience to that need to cocoon from the world because you're so overrun by this. There's a new phenomenon now called hoarding energy where you actually say no to things just in case you won't be okay within yourself or you just feel so overrun with what's going on on the left-hand side that you know that you've actually got a hoard energy and you end up saying no to things you should be saying yes to. And in this disorder of creation, we say no to the things we should be saying yes to, we say yes to the things we should be saying no to and something deep within our souls feels greatly amiss and greatly awry and we don't feel centred. We can begin to feel anxious. You put that through the rubric of leadership responsibility and leadership challenge, that is tough. I feel sorry for leaders today, maybe because I am one. (laughs) If you're a leader today, you've got to be good at everything. You have to be the CEO of a business. You have to be really good at planning and really good at implementation. You have to be good at programming. You have to be good at strategy. You have to have a really good upfront presence as well as an interpersonal presence. You have to be good at budgeting. You have to be good at HR. You have to be good at the whole entire package. And you put that in the rubric of an environment that says you also have to be busy. You also have to be winning. You also have to be successful. You also be happy to get the numbers, even though we say numbers don't matter. We still do that count. Underneath this is this fear that I'm losing and that I'm not winning because we live in a performance-driven, success-driven environment, whether that's in the church or outside the church. Busyness, achievement, production, planning, success, performance on one hand and recreation, experience, pleasure, comfort, hoarding energy and disordered resting on the other. And if you're me... You've actually got both simultaneously. And what a disordered existence. Is anyone else like this? Or is this just me with my weird leg and my burnt hand? (laughs) When you get that chance to rest, you feel anxious. When you get that chance to work, you feel like you're not doing enough. And your soul is tight. Whilst you're needing to be a Moses with a bunch of Israelites who don't know who they are and they don't know where they're going. What you'll find underneath these idols is a bunch, which is any idol, a bunch of myths, a bunch of illusions and a bunch of fears that you don't even know you have but are really powerful at shaping the way you operate and why you do what you do. Under here is also where you get your identity and under here is also where and how you measure your success. The problem with idols is you actually don't know what they are because they're as natural as breathing. You may have heard it when it comes to worldview, little goldfish that's swimming down the river and then it swims past a bunch of other fish and the other fish goes, so what's the water like? And the fish says, what's water? This is, these are idols. These aren't the little Asherah poles that you put in your car because no one puts them in there. Or the little dice that you put in your car or your little bars. 
This is the things that shape your behaviour, the things in which your happiness, your success, your identity, your meaning and your purpose hang on. My guess is you are not going to know what your idols really are. Really? Not just cognitively, but in your innermost being until you too are taken to a wilderness. It's in the wilderness that our idols are exposed. You can swear black and blue that your identity is not in what you do until what you do is taken off you. You can swear black and blue that your idol is not your partner until your partner feels or falls drastically ill. Or there's that emotional conflict and you don't seem to have that sense of unity anymore. I've got them and you've got them. And where it becomes disordered, in the world of idols, is that you have the creator and you have the created. The created is good. Anything God has made, he's gone, it is good. If you're human, he says it's very good. Like, things are good. You have here spouses, work, ministry, churches, activity, production, success, things that are good, tradition, good, opinions, good, things that are good. But there is only one creator. And where this gets disordered is when what is taken here, which is to be stewarded, what is below the line is to be stewarded. Not as something you own or you control, but something you steward. And it is put above the line and only what's above the line can be worshipped. And when what is below the line is put above the line and that is worshipped, we have a disordered creation. We have a disordered soul. These can be our opinions. These can be our ideologies. These can be our material possessions. This can be our vocational aspirations. This can be our families. This can be our houses. This can be our cars. And that may not be any of those because those things are not wrong in and of themselves. It's wrong when they're put above the line. They're wrong when that's when we get our identity, we get our meaning, we get our purpose, and we get our measures of success. In listening to some conversations, um, over the breaks, I've been, I've been fascinated because I'm exactly the same, by the way. It's, it's interesting how we can approach any topic to do with Christian thought, religion or commentary as if we're the authority because we also idolise opinion and we also think that we're the authority and it's everyone else who doesn't have it right but we actually have, have got it right. And so we can actually be deconstructors but approach it as if we're managers. Or we can be managers but actually approach, approach it as if we're traditionalists when actually that's not necessarily where God is because he's not interested in opinion. He's not even interested in your authority. He's not interested in what you do. He's not interested um, in what you have. He's interested in where you stand in regards to what is above the line. And so we have Israel worshipping something below the line, which in their case is a golden calf, whilst all the while God has just said to them, I've brought you to myself, you had no choice about it. You had as much choice about me bringing you to me as you did that you were born. You had no control. You had no say in it. I have revealed you to myself and I have carried you on eagle's wings. 
We have a golden calf. We have eagle's wings. Eagle's wings, I don't know if you've seen them, they're an incredible bird of prey. They are at the top of the chain. Eagles fascinate me to no end. I actually saw an image yesterday of an eagle. It had picked up um, this big deer. Have you seen that? And it's flying in the air with a deer. Like, seriously, they're strong. So it's America's favourite little icon. <laughs> and, which it could be a golden calf all at the same time. I'm joking. <laughs> I'm totally, totally joking. And what we have here is a bird that when it has its little eaglets and they hatch, they exist in that nest for three years. Did you know that? And the parents come every day and feed it and they add to the nest and they keep patting it and they keep it. When it's time to be kicked out of the nest, the eagles don't know how to fly, the little eaglets. They don't know how to fly. And so the mother bird actually makes them fall pushes them out so they have to learn to fly, but they can't fly it. And so the mother eagle comes under, picks them up and takes them to where she wants to go, which until they can fly is back to where they belong in the nest. And what Yahweh is saying here is that you've been kicked out of where you're comfortable. I know that it was captive, but you're also saying you prefer to be back there than in the wilderness. And I'm about to bring you to a promised land and I'm about to bring you to freedom and I'm about to do a new thing. In fact, this is like the beginning of it because for the first time I'm forming a people, a nation for myself and I have pushed you out of the nest that wasn't even a good nest and I have picked you up and I have carried you on eagle's wings and you have no control about where I'm going to take you. You have, you can't plan this. You can't, strategize this you can't put all your systems theory over this i am the one who carries you on eagle's wings and that is what his invitation to us here today and i guess what i'm trying to say here is that if as leaders if we're not careful our leadership can very easily and very quickly become about filling up our emptiness our fears our identity our ideals, our opinions over God himself. That unless it is God himself that is filling those spaces of performance, of rest, of need, of success, very quickly idols will fill those places. For Melbourne, it's achievement and comfort. Oh, the irony, all at the same time. For you individually, it's going to be something else. But it's usually not until you hit a wilderness that you realise what this is. C.H. McIntosh says that there comes a crisis in every man's life at which it will be made manifest on what ground he is resting, what motives he is actuated, and by what objects he is animated. In an anxious environment, there's going to be a lot of unconscious striving that is occurring, which underneath that has the myth that we can control, that we can change things, that we can do what only God can do. We see this cycle through the whole Old Testament. Mark mentioned it before. Judges is full of these idols that Israel goes through this cycle of they, they realise the the consequences of worshipping something other than God himself. They cry out for renewal. God comes, he renews. Then as time goes on, the same dip happens because this is in our human nature. It's in our flesh. But what struck me when I came across this recently, 
is in that passage in 32, is they didn't go, oh no, we're worshipping a golden calf. This is an Egyptian god. What are we doing? Twice they say, this is the God who brought us out of Egypt. This is the God that tomorrow we're going to throw a festival to because he's the Lord. The mistake Israel made is that the idols they were worshipping, they actually honestly thought was God. Do you hear what I'm trying to say? It's not as though they went, oh no, it's a golden calf. They actually thought this was the God that brought them out of Egypt. Is it possible in being human that the things that we think are God, our opinions, our authority, our work approach, our ministry philosophies, our traditions, our ideas, we think has got the backing of heaven behind it when actually that's not where he is. That what he is looking for in this time and place in this era, in 2017 and beyond, is a group of people who are prepared to be carried by eagle's wings, held, sustained, dependent, submitting to, not in control of, and able to soar, not because of their own power or their own wings, because they don't have them, but because of this God who will carry us where he wants to carry, which means what he's going to do in one part of the body is going to be completely different to what he does in another part of the body, which will be completely different to what he does in another part of the world, but it is the same God and the same Lord and the same ruler of all, which means this part of the body can't go, what they really should be doing is this. And this part of the body can't be going, what they really should be doing is this. It is a posture of awe and wonder, submission, to the only true God, being faithful and obedient in that space and in that place. Now, what I find incredibly interesting in this whole passage is that they think Moses has got lost hiking and he's never coming back. It's possible he has been destroyed by this scary, consuming fire and they now need to make up their own idol. So whilst they're busy making up this idol, what is actually happening not ESP, not hearsay, not wonder. What is actually happening is God is giving the leader Moses seven speeches. He is going in intricate detail, not just general themes, intricate detail, six speeches on how he wants Moses to build a dwelling place where for the first time, that was you, Sue, you may not know, if you happen to sit at the back, the lights turn off because you're heavy then. He's coming up with a place where he, for the first time since Eden, can actually dwell on earth. Israelites are fearful. Moses is getting the download. The Israelites don't know what's going on, so they make their own God out of anxiety and a need to control. God is actually saying, I want you to build for me a tabernacle and I want the windows to be three, not just three feet, three feet, three quarters. And the way I want you to make the curtains, I want the curtains to be of this material. They're to be this thickness. They're to be this shade of crimson. Not like any crimson. I want like that real nice scarlet. Th that the difference between scarlet and crimson. He is going into intense detail about a dwelling place that he wants to have on earth. Whilst they're scared he's gone, whilst they're scared that he's absent, he's actually doing the complete and opposite thing. 
He's coming up with his plans. He's coming to dwell. He's coming to be with and amidst the people. This is in 25 to 31. Six speeches about the intricate plans of how to dwell on earth with people. One speech is about a holy time. A time that has been spoken about before. It's been spoken about before this incident on the mountain. It is spoken about over 150 times over the rest of Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament. Six about a holy place. One about a holy dwelling. And he says this. Oops, sorry. This is really awkward. Like, if I'm not already awkward with a weird foot and a burnt hand, I'm now like this. God spoke to Moses, tell the Israelites, above all, keep my Sabbaths. The sign between me and you, generation after generation, to keep the knowledge alive that I am the God who makes you holy. Keep the Sabbath. It's holy to you. The Israelites are to observe the Sabbath, celebrating it for generations to come as a lasting covenant. It will be a sign between me and the Israelites forever, for in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. I'm going to give you a how here. And this how is not an opinion. This how is not a new ministry trick. This how isn't a formula. This how is a rhythm that the God who carries you on eagle's wings has put into the design of creation. It is a rhythm that ensures that you can both work well and rest well. It is a rhythm that is not an option, although it's definitely not meant to be an idol. And it is this concept of Sabbath. That as leaders, if we have any chance of ensuring that what we're doing and how we're doing it isn't dictated and shaped by our own idols or ideologies or opinions or ministry philosophies, but is shaped by the living God himself, this concept of Sabbath is essential. It goes on throughout Exodus, it goes on throughout Isaiah, it goes on throughout Jeremiah, it goes on throughout into the New Testament, Hebrews especially focuses on it, so does Corinthians, that we have this invitation to rest, that this is not a, a seven speeches that are given, and of course anyone who studies the Bible goes, seven speeches, let's take note. It's echoing Genesis 1, that there is an order of creation of what God is doing, that he's wanting to come and dwell with his people, and he's also wanting to do something with time. The thing with Sabbath is that you can't choose that it's special. It is actually already blessed and already made holy. And the invitation that I have as a human being, then as a leader, and the invitation that you have as a human being and then as a leader is to actually access a day a week and enter a realm of blessing that you cannot access any other day. That by spending that one day together with this God, you will actually spend the other six completely differently because of how you have spent that one day. 
That when it comes to a world that doesn't know when to, be, to rest, so it just gets overcome with activity and then gets so overburned by activity, it now has to have spoonies. Have you heard about spoonies where you've got a certain amount of spoons in your energy and that this activity might take away two spoons and this activity might take away three spoons and now I've only got one spoon left. So now I've got to say no to lots of things I can get more spoons. If you haven't heard about it, you will soon. But you'll be familiar with hoarding energy. The Sabbath, God in his created order, has given us a rhythm that you and I are meant to be active, we are meant to work, we are meant to be busy with our lives, we are meant to do washing and grocery shopping and tax returns and work and kids' basketball games six days a week. That is good. That is a good thing. But one day, just one, one of seven, is a day that is blessed It is a day that God has ordained that you and I can enter into. And so I want to leave you with a how. Sabbath is the fourth commandment in the Bible. Walter Brueggemann says it beautifully when he says that in those ten commandments, the first three are about having no idols. They are actually about God himself. Yahweh is the one true living God. The last six are about your neighbor. Don't lie to them. Don't get jealous of them. Don't don't murder them. That would be helpful. (laughs) Loving God, loving others, and smack bang in the middle is the longest commandment of them all, number four. Takes up the biggest passage. That is, keep my Sabbath. It already exists. I want you to keep it, and I want you to keep it holy. It's already holy. Walter Brueggemann says that you actually can't love God or love others if you're not keeping Sabbath. So I'm not here to chuck opinion at you. I'm not here to chuck my latest theory. I'm here to invite you into a how, which is Sabbath. In uh, verse 17 of this passage that I've just shown you, you'll notice here below, it will be a sign between me and the Israelites forever, for in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. Now Sabbath in the Hebrew literally means ceasing, resting from activity. That's its literal definition, to cease from activity. It is an issue of the soul. The soul in the Hebrew is nefesh. It's quite a nice word, as are all Hebrew words. They're quite nice. And in this understanding of Exodus 17, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed, the verb is related to nefesh. And one understanding of this passage is that when God was busy for six days... But creation was not complete until there was a day of rest. And that in that rest, he was re-nefeshed. What this means is that you have a soul, a nefesh, and I have a soul as well. Souls are very shy. Ruth Halley-Barton says that your soul is like an endangered animal that only comes out every now and then. The conditions have to be right. It's usually at night. And when it's still enough, the soul will make an emergence and come out of the thickets and through the grass and it will speak about what's really going on. The soul's not dominant. In this context, you probably don't know what your soul is saying. The soul hides. But your soul is something that is real. The scriptures speak to us about this, that it's often in jeopardy on a spectrum between anxiety and peace, between rest and activity that it is being disconnected from God but can be returned to God. But it lives in this state of um, 
of jeopardy, that the one who first made us in his image, this God who breathed into clay and the one who sustains, invites it to come back so he can breathe life back on us. That the one who breathed life on dirt and brought you into being wants to breathe life on your soul. That, in fact, the only one who can give you breath, the breath you're breathing now, wants to breathe more life. That our life is complex and at risk. It is jostled, it is threatened, it is unappreciated, it is in jeopardy. And Sabbath is about your soul returning to the creator God who is the only source of identity, the only source of success, the only source of meaning, the only source of purpose, and the only source of life. Walter Brueggemann goes on to say this. So imagine your nefesh, the one weary every Sunday, the one assaulted nearly every day, the one celebrated and adored at birth, the one commuting regularly between hurt and well-being. Imagine this nefesh depleted. In our depletion, our nefesh is like the nefesh of God and we must rest. So much so that God's created design is that we take one day out of seven to cease from activity. No production, no striving, no schedules, no technology, no consumption, nothing that comes against you to dare compete with God's identity for you. And that what this invitation is, is that Yahweh wants to draw you to himself so he can breathe your true identity back into you. Because it's just been out in another environment. It needs to come home again. It needs to come back to the nest and have that place restored. So in the little bit I have left, I want to give you a how. My first how is this. And it comes with the very ordination of this day, is that it's a holy day. This means that this day is not normal. It's not meant to be spent like any other day. Abraham Heschel says that the Sabbath isn't a day, it's an atmosphere. And this is an atmosphere that has holiness over it, has blessing over us. He also talks about how it's when your soul marries the day and everything comes back into its proper order and its proper alignment. So when it comes to you, I'm probably going to spend a Sabbath differently to you as a single woman. If you are a parent with three little kids, I bet it's going to look a bit different. But these rhythms, these principles are the same to me and they're the same to you. And these are the biblical ones, not Sarah Deutsch's opinions. So the first one is, is that it is holy. To spend it differently. Make it sacred, make it special. For me, I personally listen to different music on my Sabbath than I do any other day of the week. I rearrange my day differently. I personally love creation and creation ministers to me like nothing else and all is well with my soul if I'm with creation and so as much as I can. But I'm also a perfectionist so the weather has to be perfect for me to actually be out in creation. But for you, whatever it is, spend it differently to any other day. Choose the sacred and the special. The second thing that is a must... It is about rest. Graham Cook talks about in the spiritual life, in your discipleship and in your formation, your biggest weapon against the enemy who is hell-bent, no pun intended, on stealing your life and your peace is rest. And in his scheming and conniving, he actually just gets us to be busy instead because he knows if we're busy, then we're not at rest. 
And by rest, I mean, that doesn't mean not doing anything. You know how you can be, not literally have anything on, but your soul is like screaming and it's frantic and it's dislocated. This rest is different. It is to align yourself purely to the purposes of rest and renewal, and that may look different from Sabbath to Sabbath. It's holy over normal, and it's rest over activity. For me, I actually ask my soul, which is an endangered animal, and it takes a little bit to come out, what does my soul need today? What is it before God and who he is and what he wants to speak and recreate in me is he wanting to say? Introverts, extroverts spend this differently because we're wired differently. Ryan, he's one of our apprentice ministers, came to us the other week and he's like, Oh man, I just realised, I just discovered that Sabbath's actually really important. I just thought until now that it was like a day of quiet times. It's not a day of quiet times. It's purely about relaxation. Not time of work, relaxation. True rest, true refreshment. And if you live in this day and age, it actually might take a while for you to actually learn this rest because it hasn't known it, possibly, for a long time. But I'm sure all of us have got a sense memory, maybe a couple of times in our lives, maybe more, hopefully more, where the world just felt right. And it could be a day where it was just like pouring with rain and the kids were home and half of them were drawing and the others were just watching a DVD and you didn't have to be anywhere. And it was right. And there was rest. And what you really needed was to do nothing and be no one. And to be home. The heartbeat of Sabbath is that you get to encounter that for a whole day, once a week. Stillness, quietness, peace, home. And the third thing is that it is essential to every Sabbath is resistance. By that, I mean an intentional resistance to withdraw from anything that culture says you should be, should be doing, or feeds your sense of success or identity. I'll say that again. It's the intentional withdrawing from anything culture says to you, you need to be, to have a sense of identity, meaning, or purpose. It's saying no to work. It's saying no to productivity. It's saying no to technology. It's saying no to consumerism. It's saying no to our culture's golden calves. In this little talk, I spoke to you about Israel anxious nation, chosen by God to be a holy people set apart. Out of anxiety and fear and abandonment, they've gravitated to something they can see and they can control. It's a human condition. I've also spoken to you about Moses, who is almost embodying the complete opposite to this nation. He's not anxious. He's got a heck of a lot of responsibility on his shoulders. But he's not anxious. He is a man 
who had actually already been through the wilderness before Israel was taken through the wilderness. He is a man who, if anyone had an identity crisis, it was him. If you remember his story, he wasn't really Hebrew and he wasn't really Egyptian. Put your family systems theory onto that one. He has an identity crisis. He has got formational issues. His environment hasn't shaped a centred person or someone that you would necessarily pick as a good leader. wasn't even eloquent. In an outburst, his character issues come up and they absolutely always will, particularly in the crucible of ministry. Your biggest issues will come up. Leadership is often a confrontation with your fears that you didn't even know you had. He murders someone. God chooses to take him out and he takes him to a wilderness himself for 40 years where through a process of solitude, through a process of withdrawing, through a process of being away from the thick of the empire, God reforms him. God remoulds him. He doesn't make his own life. God, Yahweh himself, gives him specific gifts. He gives him a wife. He gives him children. And then one day he's going about his everyday business and he sees a burning bush doesn't walk past it. I don't think I would walk past it either. He gives it attention and from there he gets called out. His preparation, his centeredness, his even killedness in such an intensely pressurised situation came after 40 years of preparation. His Sabbath was 40 years, essentially. That's my version. It's not biblical. That's my version. But God has designed it that once a week you need to be reformed. That there are identity issues that you have that you don't realise and actually think they're God working through you, but they actually stem from some fears, some childhood memories and some insecurities that you're not aware of, but your soul is very aware of them and that can't help but come out. And God wants to take you away and bless that, renew that, refresh that. There are things that the Christian world says you should be doing and should be achieving and should be having that you think have got God written all over them but they're actually about models of success and behaviour which are good in and of themselves but are actually being worshipped more than what God actually wants to take away and minister to you about. The reason why this is so important, and as I draw to a close, is Paul talks about this again in 1 Corinthians 10. And he says, don't forget what happened to the Israelites when they were at Mount Sinai says don't forget because those things happened so that those at the beginning of the story of God choosing people would be an encouragement and a warning to us at the end of the story who are responsible for the end of the age to not forget to not get caught up in the same cycle of what happens to the human condition and human nature the voice of the nations and the desire to run back to Egypt and have brick quotas and production schedules and control and success because he doesn't want golden calves. He desperately wants to carry us on eagle's wings. He has given us his rhythms for success. He's always been looking for a people and he's always given us the rhythms of success and he has not made this hard. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. And it is a way of rest. My one caveat to all of this is that I'm not going to pretend that keeping a Sabbath is easy. We all have reasons why not. I've got mine. But if I'm to be honest, 10 out of 10 of my reasons why not 
are actually my idols. Who am I when I don't have a project to finish or a meeting to attend? Who am I when I've got nothing to watch on TV or nothing satisfying on my Facebook feed, which I've since got rid of, by the way, just don't like it. The things that are preventing you, no matter how much you can rationalise, like the Israelites, but this is God. They're your idols. If you want to know what your idols are, what are the things that are preventing you or coming in the way of you keeping Sabbath? That our God, his yoke is easy, his burden is light, and he invites you to be with him intimately one day a week. I'm going to pray. Father God, we want to really honour you. I want to honour you for the stories that are in this room. There are many different stories as there are people and how each person you have called to yourself, how you have already carried them on eagle's wings. I want to praise and thank you for the ways in which you have woven your life through them already, the ways in which you have prepared them, the ways in which you have formed them, the ways in which you have shaped their experience. And I just want to ask and pray that you would quicken in their soul and in their spirit, their spirit, a sense of anticipation that your calling for them is not over. Your purposes for them are in many ways only beginning. But that those purposes cannot and will not be made complete if we walk out of order with your creation. And so I ask and pray for a courage to come upon them. I ask and pray for a sense of resolve and excitement and privilege that you as God as Yahweh, long to speak face to face with us. I ask and pray that by the wonderful ministry of your Holy Spirit, that you would come and show each one of us the invitation you have for us and the how you would have us spend time with you. That you would show us how to make it holy. It actually already is holy, but how to keep it holy that you would show us how to truly rest, not just be still. And that you would give us the courage to resist the lies and the myths that are so strong. And they are just as strong in our Christian culture as in our world culture. And our heart always wants to run back to Egypt because it's familiar. Would you give us strength to stand out and to be separate, to be a holy people? In Jesus' powerful name, for his glory. Amen.